Leave it all in the field. Give it all you got. Hold nothing back. Growing up as an athlete and a coach's son is that. I'm a water boy to actually playing on the field. I heard motivational catchphrases like that quite often. If you've ever played sports or coached a sports team, you've probably heard those same things. These mottos are used to inspire us, but they're also to challenge us not to give up when the competition is fierce. Well, over the centuries and throughout many generations in church history, Christians have adopted similar words of resolve and commitment that have inspired many believers, perhaps some of you even here today, towards greater passion and greater faithfulness to Jesus Christ. For example, in his pursuit to live a God-glorifying life, Jonathan Edwards once penned 70 resolutions that he would build his life upon. Resolution 17, he said this, quote, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Or think of the 17th century pastor, Richard Baxter, whose words about preaching have stirred up many a man to preach with urgency in their pulpits. Quote, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. Or consider the words from three different missionaries. C.T. Studd once penned, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jim Elliott, who would later be martyred on the mission field, once prayed, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn up for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Or maybe you recall Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, who once prayed, God, hold us to that which drew us first when the cross was the attraction and we wanted nothing else. When you read quotes like that and you hear Christians pray like that, What you hear behind them is a heart of resolve, commitment, conviction, passion. Brothers and sisters, what is it that you are most committed to in your life? What are the convictions in your life that you are so utterly convinced of that if you do not act out on those convictions, you would think that your life is an utter waste or failure. What is it that compels you? What is it that motivates you when life gets really hard, when it's dark and disappointments are all you see? What is it that keeps you anchored in hope when the dead-end road signs are staring your plans in the face. Let's make it more personal now with the people God has put in your life. Think about the people who know you the best. 
I mean, they know what kind of cereal you eat for breakfast. They know what you complain about. They know everything about you. They know the good, the bad, and the really, really ugly about you. Would they characterize you as someone who uses people for personal gain or as someone who genuinely spends and is spent for others? I think a good litmus test of this is how people respond to your departure from being in their life. Would people be deeply affected and weighed down with sadness if you weren't in their life anymore? In your church? In your job? In your neighborhood? In your family? If you moved away to a new state, you moved on to another church, Would the way you treated people make them long for you to stay? Or would they be glad that you left? CCBC, these type of questions should also challenge each one of us in our discipling relationships with one another. So to that end, does the way you're living your life, does the way that I'm living my life inspire others to follow Jesus more faithfully with their life. When Jonathan Edwards penned his own resolution of resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die, in what ways does that resolution make you and I rethink how we're living our lives today? And friends, when it's all said and done, What characterizes a life well lived? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, it's on page 542, Acts chapter 20. This morning, we're taking a little break. From the Gospel of Mark, if you're a member here at CCBC, I sent you a preaching schedule for the next three months, and Lord willing, we'll return back to Mark in the fall. Today in our sermon passage, we're going to look at a farewell address, or a goodbye sermon, that the Apostle Paul gave the leaders of the church in Ephesus. This was a church that he obviously helped get started, and so from the very beginning, he saw young believers grow up to be more mature believers. This was a church that Paul deeply loved. This was a church whose leaders he also had invested much time in, much of his energy in, to pass the baton of leadership to, as he would no longer be around. And so Paul left these pastors, and really for us this morning, an example of a life well lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's look together now at this parting speech in Acts 20, starting in verse 17, Acts 20. Starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility 
and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you, That by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. As an apostle, Paul was commissioned. He was given authority and sent out by the Lord Jesus to take the good news, to take the gospel to groups of people and lands that had never heard before. Paul and his ministry team would embark on three large missionary journeys. And upon Paul's third missionary journey, they landed in a place called Ephesus. It was the capital of the Roman province off the west coast of Asia. Once Paul began evangelizing in the synagogue, and he was run out of the synagogue because people were stubborn and unbelieving, but there was a remnant. There was a small group of disciples. You can read about this in Acts 19. They decided, hey, we want to continue growing, and so they rented out the hall of Tyrannus. 
And Paul would teach them for two years. And it says in Acts 19.10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So by God's grace, many people became Christians. And a local church was planted. But as was common, when Paul was faithful to Jesus, he was met with opposition from people who did not love Jesus. He was persecuted, and eventually he had to leave town. Paul's travel plans would lead him towards Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. But prior to making that destination, he decided to stop in Miletus, which is about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And here, Paul would not call the whole church. He would only go so close, and he would call the leaders. The elders, as we read in Acts 20, that word's used interchangeably in the New Testament, for pastors or overseers. You can see how Luke, who writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will use these interchangeably in this section. He's, he's speaking to those who are qualified to serve as leaders in God's house. And what he does is that Paul reflects back on all the years they spent together in life and ministry. And, and then he offers words of wisdom and counsel as he anticipated that where the Lord was leading him, he probably would never see most of them ever again. Paul had looked back at the years where God had used him, had spoken through him, and how he was looking forward to what God had still planned for Paul to do. And, but not really just for Paul, but Paul as a good pastor was basically telling them, God has good plans for you too, and you need to get ready for them. So in this speech, this farewell address, Paul embodies for these pastors and for really all of us who are Christians today an example of a life well-lived, a life well spent for the glory of Jesus Christ. So this morning, to kind of help guide where we're going, uh, we're going to look at six ways Paul leaves an example of a life well spent. One who left it all on the field for King Jesus. And then secondly, towards the end, I want to speak to you personally as your pastor here at CCBC as we look forward together at our lives and ministry in the remainder of 2021. So what does a life well spent for the glory of Christ look like? Well, I want you to notice first, number one, Paul's humble service. His humble service. Look at verses 18 and 19. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Uh, here, Paul is not boasting in himself. What Paul is basically saying is that I have given you an example because I have ultimately imitated our perfect example, Jesus Christ. You see, Paul resembled that of Christ himself when Jesus once walked this earth among sinners. Yes, Jesus was courageous, as we've been looking in the Gospel of Mark. 
Uh, He was bold. He did not fear men's faces, even those who wanted to threaten his life. But one of the characteristics, if you study the life of Jesus, that is painted all over the canvas of the New Testament is also the humility of Jesus. The scriptures describe Jesus as one who is gentle and lowly in heart. Uh, He's compassionate and kind, full of love and mercy. Philippians 2, the women's Bible study. Uh, Mindy, where did y'all leave uh, before the summer? All right, so y'all have already passed this. You are embedded in Philippians 2. You know where I'm going. If you've ever wanted to know how humble was Jesus, Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, is the clearest description of the humility of Jesus. It says this, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Paul didn't need a ton of role models to look up to. When he had King Jesus, he could imitate. Jesus was his greatest role model, if you will. Yes, he had a godly grandmother, possibly, or aunt. We're not sure if any of them got saved through his ministry, or maybe he was the first of his generation. And he had friends, of course, but it was King Jesus he wanted to please with his life. Wherever Paul went, whatever he was doing, whoever he was with, he wanted to please Jesus. From the first day, did you notice that? From the first day, not six months in, not two years in, from the first day my foot hit Ephesus, I'm going to please Jesus. And from the last moment he would speak to the elders, he wanted to please Jesus. How did Paul seek to please Jesus? It's very clear. He served the Lord through serving and shepherding the Lord's sheep. That's why he says in verse 19, did you notice? He didn't say, I served you ultimately. I was serving who? The Lord. That's where all service in the Christian life is first directed. It's it's the Lord. This was his passionate burden. This was his life mission statement. This was his all-consuming resolve. In essence, Paul was saying this, if Christ died for me, then I will live for him. You see, when Paul was converted, back in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, uh, Paul didn't just turn over a new leaf or make a few New Year's resolutions. Paul was given new life. He was made a new creature. He became born again. The spirit of the living God gave him new taste buds and new ambitions to aim and to pursue, which was pleasing Jesus. So when these elders were hearing Paul recount what they had seen with their own eyes, what they had heard with their own ears as they watched Paul's life, since the first day he stepped foot in Asia, They didn't see a perfect man, but they did see a man controlled 
by the love and selflessness of a perfect Savior. See, the leaders at Ephesus, they didn't see a tyrant in Paul. They didn't see a celebrity pastor. They didn't see a dictator. They didn't see a man who was living a double life, publicly portraying himself as godly, but privately a hypocrite. No, it was the humility of Christ that radiated like a bright, shining sun through the clouds on a morning. It was the humility of Christ that radiated through this once very proud, pharisaical man. Friends, pride is a subtle and deadly poison. If you can recognize that pride is an ongoing battle in your life, you're already on the first step towards growing in humility. Did you know that? If you can honestly look at God's word with no questions, no qualifications, no but, if, and, but, but, you know, yes, I'm prideful, super prideful. You're on the first step towards understanding what it means to live the blessed life. You see, the blessed life is when you realize you are utterly prideful and you need God's amazing grace. But those who don't think they're prideful are self-deceived. You see, pride is the grease that people slide down when they fall into sin. All the time, every time. Don't you remember Proverbs 16, 18? Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's not after, it's not during, it's before. Pride likes to hatch as an early little chicken, and then it grows up to this monster. That's why we need to kill it before it grows in our life. And listen, one of the reasons why you're blessed, if you can see your pride, when God reveals your pride, We can sound like David, can't we, in Psalm 51? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We just got done on a road trip. One thing that was very common in our road trip is dead bugs splatting the windshield and riding behind trucks when dirt was flying in the windshield. And Julie has to remind me, hey, you might want to, you know, get that off. You know, wash your fluid, please. Well, friends, when, when you are blessed of the Lord, when God awakens your sight to see the sin in your life, it's like he shows it all in the windshield. But he says, I've, I've let you see it so you can trust in me to wipe it away. It's a blessing when God shows you your sin. It's a blessing when he says, you've got pride that is separating me from you. Friends, that's a good sign that God is trying to teach you and cultivate humility when you can see your pride in your face. That's the Lord purging. That's the Lord cleansing the old man so that he can renew you and make you more into the new man, which is Christ in you. Friends, conviction, anytime you're hearing the word of God and you know the spirit of God is, is, is nudging and sometimes demolishing idols and strongholds and hidden sin in the dark. Friends, don't suppress it. That's God's way of liberating you. If you've walked into here condemned and guilty, you're in the right place. We're all sinners in need of God's mercy. 
And if you're tempted to think, oh, someone will look down on me, to the wind with what people think. It's only what Jesus thinks. Jesus died for all sins, including our demonic pride. He died for it all. And did you know most of our sin flows from pride? It's a package deal. He died for it all. The humility of Jesus led to our deliverance from pride. Isn't that what we sang about earlier in the service? What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, his sins, they are, our sins, they are many. His mercy is what? More. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is. So if you're here today and you recognize that you're probably not a Christian, this same mercy is extended to you. When we recognize our selfishness, when we recognize our pride, when we recognize our arrogance, when we recognize our disposition towards running our own life, going our own way, thinking that we're in control, thinking that this life is about my good pleasure and all my glory. Friends, if you can see that welling up and it's on the windshield of your life, you're blessed. The next step now is turn from that sin. Call out to God for mercy realize he has sent us a savior in Jesus and he can empower us by his spirit to put to death that ugly pride in our life. You see, Christ humbled himself in obedience to God when we were disobedient to God. He died on the cross. His humble sacrifice bore the penalty that our sins deserve and God raised him from the dead in power to conquer that deceitful pride that ensnares so many of us. Friends, if you don't know this Savior today, remember, he welcomes the weakest, the vilest. He welcomes the most proud man or woman in this room, and he can turn you to a whole different person. He'll make you humble like our Lord Jesus. Trust in him. Believe in him. And God will make you new. By the grace of God, Paul was obedient to the will of God in his ministry at Ephesus. Like his Lord, he remained humbly submitted to God's sovereignty, even in the midst of turmoil and trials. Do you notice what Paul faced in his life? Sounds very similar to what Jesus faced in his life. Did you catch that trial he went through? Through the plots of the Jews. Friends, if you follow Jesus, you and I will never die on the cross for anyone's sins, but if you follow Jesus long enough, you will carry a cross and you will suffer in ways that Jesus did because we are identified with him. We've been crucified with him. And if we want to reign with him, we will also suffer with him, Romans 8 tells us. Like Christ, Paul was maligned, misrepresented, misunderstood, falsely accused, and then beaten and pushed out 
for his witness for Christ. And yet, through it all, Paul's imitation of Jesus poured forth the beautiful fragrance of humility amongst these leaders. The evil plots of unbelieving men did not prevent Paul from persevering and humbly serving the Lord. In fact, the trials and thorns that Paul had to bear up were God's painful but merciful way of keeping Paul humble, keeping him dependent. Friends, I don't know all the hardships you're facing today, but you do, and the Lord does. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I know this thing for sure. God will use all types of storms and thorns to keep you dependent on him. He will keep those painful, difficult, challenging, never seems to go away, trials of various kinds. So that we might put to death the bitterness, the hatred, the impatience in our hearts, and that the Spirit would create meekness, gentleness, patience, and self-control. The Lord resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And sometimes God puts a heavy squat rack of weight on our backs, thorns in our sides, storms in our life to cultivate humility and dependence in our life. Friends, that's what these leaders saw in Paul's life. God knew if he was going to see churches planted through this man, he would have to break down this proud man in front of these future leaders. They saw a servant leader whose suffering they would need to learn from so that they could face their sufferings that were to come as well. Friends, this is really what discipleship's all about. You think your suffering's a waste. You're tempted to think that was ridiculous. Wow, I'm glad that part of my life's over. Friends, the Lord never wastes any trial he brings into your life. Romans 8, 28 is the good and the bad and the ugly. And he works it all for your good and for the good of others he will send you to minister to. A life well spent is a life of humble service to the Lord. The second characteristic we see in Paul is number two is faithful teaching. His faithful teaching. Look at 20 and 21, verses 20 and 21. He says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look down in verses 26 and 27. He goes on to say, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, Paul's humble service became an example to these leaders by the trials that he had to bear up, but it was also his teaching that he put forward that would serve as an example. Did you notice that Paul says twice, I did not shrink back. I did not fearfully walk away. I did not hold anything back from teaching you. In other words, he was saying, I've taught you the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. I have packed your book bag with everything you're going to need. 
as you go forward in the discipleship school of Jesus. He said, I was always candid with you. I wasn't holding things back. I wasn't deleting things off my notes so that people would like me. No, I gave you what God has given us. He says, I gave what is profitable for you, what's beneficial for you, what builds you up. Not merely what you want to hear, but what we need to hear. In other words, Paul, he didn't give these Ephesian elders a joke and a Coke. You know what a joke and a Coke is. It's a fake sermon. It's a lot of jokes, a lot of stories, a little bit of Bible has nothing to do with what he's actually talking about, and a closing prayer. It's a joke and a Coke. Most Christians grow up thinking that's church. Friends, that ain't church. That's a waste of your time. You know what church is? I want to hear from my God. I care less about the time. I care a whole lot more about the truth. I got 168 hours in a week. A third of that may go to sleep. A third of that may go to work. And everything in between, but give me the word, preacher. Give me the Bible. Give me the unadulterated gospel. Rare back and preach because I'm praying. You preach, pastor. Friends, that's church. It's not a box to check. It's a feast. The sheep don't eat mud and slop, but they eat the food that God's given his people. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Georgia boy. I ain't from D.C. Paul didn't give him a joke and a coke. He gave him meat and potatoes. He gave him the fruits and vegetables. He gave him the rich food from God's kitchen. He gave him the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He knew from the gospel writers themselves, Mark, Luke, and John. Listen, he opened up the scriptures and pointed them to the Savior because he knew eternity is at stake. Judgment day is coming, and people need to hear the truth and the love of God through what the Bible says. Friends, simply put, Paul wanted the people of God to know the word of God, period. He wanted them to be a people of the book. He wanted them to be so full of God's word that if they were to be pricked with a needle, they would bleed the Bible. Every mom and every dad should want that for their children. Every pastor, every Bible study should want that for their church. We should all be with the days God gives us, whether it's a short life or a long one with all the opportunities he gives us to spread the seed of God's word far and wide, spitting it to the person in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, telling them about Jesus, passing out a book or a track on the plane, telling people about Jesus at weddings and funerals in the hallway, in text messages, in emails. We want to tell people about Jesus. Members of CCBC, I know that this church in some ways might do ministry differently than other churches you've been a part of in your past. The services are longer. The sermon is longer. The membership process is more rigorous. The songs we sing require more participation from the congregation singing. Our building, as you realize, you could shoot a three-pointer or a foul shot. If the sermon was bad, shoot a foul shot. If it was good, hit a three. We're not in a traditional church building. It's really loud right now. I'm having to raise my voice so you actually can hear me. And we don't have a ton of programs or amenities to offer, but here's one thing I hope. And it's one thing I hope you have in your prayers for our church. 
we may not do everything well. And we may not have a ministry that appeases everyone's preferences or past church traditions, but that can't be our goal in the first place. The one thing this ministry must be about is the centrality of the Word of God. If God's Word is not the fountain that is fueling this thing, we should pray for Jesus to close the door, remove the lampstand and the preacher, and we be forgotten. But if we keep God's Word up in front and feeding God's people God's Word, well, the Lord may do things that are beyond our imagination. CCBC, pray that we would be a Jesus-loving church that earnestly hungers for the Word of God, that we want to hear the Bible proclaimed and accurately taught, that we would be a people that prioritize gathering with the saints and sitting under the Word of God. This week, I have the great privilege of officiating and preaching my granddad's funeral. It would be a tremendous honor. I don't know how many people will be there, but I imagine quite a bit. My granddad meant a lot to a lot of people. I imagine there will be many tears, there will be many stories. But even if you didn't know my granddad, if you were at the funeral, I, I could almost promise you, you would walk away going, wow, people really loved Alton McCollum. I don't even know the man. I can really tell these people loved him. Well, brothers and sisters, if an unbeliever walked in our worship gatherings, would they say, wow, these people really love the God of this book. They love his word. I pray that would be true of our church. In Paul's ministry, Paul was concerned for Christians and he was concerned for unbelievers. That was abundantly clear because he preached repentance and faith. That was, that was a part of the gospel message. If there is no repentance, there is no salvation. Saving faith is always coming on the heels of genuine repentance that leads unto faith. Paul's faithfulness to teach sound doctrine and hold nothing back he led him to stand before God and these men with a clear conscience. Look at verse 26. It was so clear that he said, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. In other words, Paul said, listen, I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. But I have fulfilled the ministry God gave me in Ephesus. That responsibility sounds very similar to what a pastor is called to do, right? He's to teach sound doctrine and to keep watch over the flock as those who will have to give an account. Hebrews 13, 17. Friends, a life well spent is a life committed to the faithful teaching of the word of God. The third characteristic we see in Paul's life is his courageous convictions. His courageous convictions. Look at verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And here's his resolve. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul knew two things very clearly when he set foot in Asia. 
in Ephesus. Suffering was in front of him, and suffering would await him when he would head to Jerusalem. But the spread of the gospel was more important to Paul than the suffering God would call him to face. You see, the gospel was not the cherry on top of his life. It was everything to him. He was not ashamed of the gospel. It was of first importance to the apostle Paul. Listen, if Paul had a life verse, if he had a bumper sticker on his Volvo, I think verse 24 would be Paul's Volvo bumper sticker. Look at it again. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What an astounding statement, right? I don't think my life is worth squat. It's nothing. It's a waste. It's vanity. It's missed unless I finish the race and I do what God's called me to do. Paul had weighed his life in the balance of eternity. He counted the cost, like we are called to count the cost, in following Jesus. And Paul saw with unquestionable clarity that Christ was his greatest treasure and the gospel was the greatest message for him to tell. So much that any suffering, loss of friends, loss of health, loss of sleep, loss of money, loss of comforts, loss of being familiar in certain places, all of it, all of it, all of it was worth it in the path of obeying Jesus. If my suffering leads to the exaltation of Jesus, come what may. That's what he's saying. You see, the gospel is not merely the initial ABCs of Paul's life, but it was his daily supply source, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for joy, for hope, for strength, for endurance. And friends, that's what should be true of every Christian. The grace we receive from God through faith in Christ is all we need for life and godliness. Friends, this is the same lesson you and I are going to learn over and over and over and over and over again. Joy, this is what we're going to be learning until the day we die. As you've been following Jesus for a long time, you're going to give a silent or a loud amen to this. But you've probably learned, as one of our dear saints who've walked with Jesus a long time, no matter what God brings into your life, Christ is always enough. No matter what, what you gain, what you lose, what you suffer, what you receive, Christ is always enough. You know, often Christians ask, what is God's will for my life? Does he want me to live in Fort Smith or Fort Lauderdale? Some of you go, hmm, that last one sounds pretty good. Does he want me to live in Arkansas or Arizona? Does he want me to leave my church or stay? Does he want me to stay single or will he ever bring me a spouse? Will God bless me with children? Will he allow me to buy a home? Does he want me to go back to school? Does he want me to get another job? 
Friends, those are all fine questions. But regardless of where you live today or where God might lead you tomorrow, or whatever God's providence brings into your life, we have the promise that no matter what, he will be with us. No matter what. The first question from the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. You see, the gospel grounded Paul with rock-solid assurance that wherever God led him next, whatever suffering was tailor-made for Paul's life, Christ would always be enough. Who Christ is, what he has done, and who we are in him. Friends, is Christ enough for you? A life well spent is a life led by courageous convictions shaped by the gospel. The fourth characteristic we see in Paul is that he spoke the truth in love. He spoke the truth in love. You see, after Paul now reflects back and he begins to encourage and challenge these pastors, and he does this by reminding them now of their calling from God, their responsibilities, and their need to now know the scriptures as much as Paul did so that they can fulfill their ministry. Look at verses 28 to 32. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Parents, if you can recall back in this time or you currently have this Scary opportunity to teach your teenage children how to drive. You're going to track with me on this one. What is the one thing you've probably said to your kids or currently doing over and over again when you're in the car? Anyone want to take a guess? Slow down? Watch the road? Probably a bunch of things like that and probably some things you regret you can't say in public, but you probably said keep keep your eye on the road. Stop playing with the radio. Stop looking at the phone. Stop checking out your hair. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Look left, look right, and watch where you're going. In similar fashion, Paul instructs these pastors 
to keep your eyes on the narrow way. Keep your eyes first on yourself. Make sure your relationship with Jesus is right. And keep your eyes on the flock that I've entrusted to you. What was that calling he gave these Ephesian elders? Well, it was to keep a close watch on themselves and to care for or pastor God's people. To lead them. To teach them. To pray for them. To warn them. To correct them. To equip them. To serve them. To pray for them. To weep with them. To rejoice with them to sing with them, and to protect them. Why are pastors called to do this? Well, Paul said that after his departure, fierce wolves will come in. They're going to come in from the outside, but he says even from the inside. And they're doing that to lead the sheep astray. Friends, you might be here today and you have a lot of unbelieving friends that reject the claims of Christianity because they deny the supernatural. They're not going to believe in what you can't see, touch, feel, blah, 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 blah. It's a terrible, irrational argument. You can catch someone in a total illogical contradiction. But as a Christian, one of the things that we know and believe is that we believe in a risen Lord who's coming back again. But our risen Lord who's coming back again told us we have an ancient adversary. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Human beings are not our greatest enemy. We have a supernatural enemy. He's described in Scripture as a lion. Satan comes and prowls around like a lion, and he typically looks for vulnerable and weak sheep to devour. Sheep that are on the fringe. Sheep nobody knows about. Sheep that are poorly taught. All they know is a joke and a coke because phony pastors didn't feed them the scriptures. They're weak, they're malnourished, they're scared, they're confused, and they're taken advantage of in hordes by manipulative and deceitful men. That's why a man who aspires to the office of elder must first have a deep love for Jesus and a deep love for his sheep. Self-preservation must die if a man wants to get close to the role of an elder. Elders are called to protect the sheep, go after sheep who are going astray, And brothers, if you aspire to this one day, if God awakens your desire for it, let me go ahead and forewarn you. Even when you're trying to help sheep, sometimes sheep bite and it hurts. But that comes with the territory. Being an elder, being a pastor is not for the faint of heart. It isn't for those who want a title. It isn't for those who want a comfortable position. It isn't for those who want to have some type of authority for the sake of authority. If you want to be an elder, man, if you have any inkling and prayerful desires, which is a noble task, be forewarned, your life will get very messy and interrupted really quick with the problems and needs of the sheep.
but it's worth it because it's Christ's sheep. It's Christ's people. You see, a false teacher or an unregenerate pastor or an egotistical man who has it for the wrong reasons, he's a thief and a robber in God's house. They care more about money, more about their ego, but they care nothing for the sheep, as we read earlier from John chapter 10. That's why Paul commended these men to stick closely to the word of God. Sin will keep you from this book, and this book will help keep you from your sin. Hide thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. For all my King James Version folks. A life well spent is a life committed to speaking the truth in love. Not everyone will be a pastor, but pastors are called to equip the saints to speak the truth in love. So everyone has the role to protect and care for Christ's sheep. Number five, we also see this fifth characteristic, that Paul is a man of integrity and generosity. Look at verses 33 to 35. He says, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, one of the false accusations that Paul had brought to his desk, if you will, was that he was in ministry for the money. He was in it to fleece the sheep, build his own platform, make a big name for himself. But Paul says, I've remained above reproach in how I handled money. Instead, coveting was not my main concern. I was content with what God gave me, Paul says. Instead of being lazy and looking for handouts in life, did you notice Paul says he worked hard? He worked hard with his hands so that he could share with others who were in need. Uh, Friends, you might think that Christianity is about just a bunch of head knowledge. It's actually one of the most, it is the most practical way to live your life. How does the gospel affect your life on a Sunday through Saturday? Well, the grace of God gets us to work. We work not unto men, but unto who? Unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your might. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, which includes your job. That phone call, those emails, those projects, doing the job when no one's watching. Christians should have some of the most exemplary work ethics in the world because we're doing it for King Jesus. Paul was a man who worked hard, and Paul was a man who experienced the grace of God, touches work ethics and his wallet. See, according to Jesus in Matthew 6, storing up heavenly treasure is a wise investment. A wise investment. If you want to protect your heart from greed, give things away. If you want to protect your heart from being selfish and indulgent all the time, surround yourself with people who are more needy than you and see how you can be generous with what God has given you. Again, Paul cared less about what he could gain from others and more about what he could give to others. A life well spent is a life inclined towards integrity and generosity. The sixth and final characteristic we see in Paul is number six, he deeply loved those he invested in. Look at verse 36. 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul had served these saints and invested in these pastors for nearly three years. As these men heard Paul give these departing words, they probably had so many thoughts bubble up to the forefront of their minds. Memories. Sweet memories. The first time they met in the marketplace or in the synagogue. The day they came to know the Lord through his ministry. The nights he spent in their homes teaching them the scriptures. Playing with their kids. Encouraging their wives. Early morning breakfast of fish and bread. And praying together. Hanging out and enjoying one another's company together. Could you imagine these group of men who were looking at their mentor? looking at this example, looking at the first pastor who's ever loved them. It was a very hard day. There was weeping. There was much embracing. There was prayer. And then they said goodbye. Paul had deeply loved those who he had discipled and invested in. Friends, I think a good lesson here If God has used someone in your life in any way to help you follow Jesus, they've affected your marriage, your children, your understanding of the word, your godliness, anxiety, depression, friendship, whatever, in any measure, don't wait till it's too late to tell them thank you. Don't wait until the day they say God's leading me elsewhere. Friends, we should be the most encouraging group of people because we can identify all the ways God has used each other in our lives. Friends, who are those people that come to your mind today? Who has God used like Paul did with these Ephesian elders? Take time to thank them, encourage them. Don't take them for granted. They're God's gift to you. Because one day, beloved, God will take them from your life. From in death or to lead them on elsewhere, like he did Paul. What does a life well-lived look like? I think Paul's example shows us this. When the gospel captivates your heart, it will control the direction and decisions of your life. When the gospel captivates your heart, it will control the direction and decisions of your life. Remember, humble service, faithful teaching, Courageous convictions, speaking the truth in love, integrity and generosity, and loving deeply. I'd encourage each one of us to look over those qualities, those characteristics, which God and Christ had worked through Paul that we might imitate in our own life. Now, here we are at the middle of 2021 and coming up on one year almost and being a church later in September. As your pastor, I want to, in the same vein... Uh, love to love, pastor to church, a close with a word of encouragement and a word of counsel to us as a church as we move forward together. First, a word of encouragement. Give thanks to God 
for all he has done. Give thanks to God for all he has done. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has brought us this far, and we have much to thank him for. The Lord has been gracious to provide for our needs, a building to meet in regularly, the ability to purchase a piece of land, and Lord willing, one day, if he so decides, we may be able to build a church building on one day, a budget that is currently able to provide for a full-time lead pastor, thank you, a full-time pastoral assistant, a part-time pastoral internship program, and funds to meet the various demands and ministry needs in our church's life. The Lord has also provided for us in giving us volunteers to serve in various ways through our service teams, the women's Bible study, and Lord willing, we'll have our first slate of elders serve alongside me to shepherd the flock here at CCBC this fall. The Lord has also been gracious to teach many of us, if not all of us, much about himself in the last year, whether that's through sermons, Bible studies, or simply through the trials we've walked through together. I want to encourage each one of us to set time aside, share with somebody what God's been teaching you lately in your life. You never know who God might bring your way, and you will speak that word in season to them. Number two, a word of counsel. Cultivate humility through service. Cultivate humility through service. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Cultivate humility. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways that we can do that is by serving in ways that don't get much notoriety or spotlight, but meet practical and important needs in the life of our church. You see, it's a temptation in the life of every church for people to want praise and notoriety and spotlight and serve in ways that they can be seen. Let me go ahead and tell you, it is very difficult to get on stage and preach every Sunday because I have the same sin struggles residing in my life that you do. There's a whole lot of brokenness that God brings into my life so that I can get up here and give you the Bible and not Blake. So I plead for you, I encourage you, find ways to serve in the life of this church quietly and faithfully, even if nobody but Jesus can see. You know, aside from the music team, which is on stage, the digital media team, which you see on Facebook and Instagram, and the welcome and hospitality team, which you can see in the lobby, most of the service teams are designed to quietly facilitate much of what goes on in this building every week. From the children's ministry behind the walls, the sound team behind the booth, the member care, security and cleaning teams, which give their time and energy in ways that most of us don't see all the time. These are wonderful ways, if you're a member here, to get more involved in the life of the church and to serve. And if you are a member here uh, and you're not serving on any of these teams, consider joining one or maybe switching to serve in another one. But if you don't join a service team, which is totally fine, consider showing hospitality to people who may not be able to pay you back in the same way. 
in all these things, we want to guard our hearts against craving titles or roles of authority and instead humbly desire to serve in whatever ways that will build up his church and protect the unity of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. I close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon who once said, Do not think of waiting until you can do some great thing for God. Do little things, and then the master will bid you go higher. Eleven years ago, I was addressing Sunday school children and these alone. Ten, nine years ago, I was preaching in little insignificant rooms here and there, generally going out and coming back on foot, and occasionally getting a lift in the cart. It has often happened that when I have been going out to certain villages, the brooks would be so swollen that they could not be crossed in the usual way. So I would pull off my shoes and stockings, wade through up to my knees, then try to make myself tidy again as best as I could and go on to the little chapel to preach and return home in the same way. Now I am perfectly sure that If I had not been willing to preach to those small gatherings of people in obscure country places, I should never have had the privilege of preaching to thousands of men and women in large buildings all over the land. If one wishes to be a steward in God's house, he must first be prepared to serve as a scullion in the kitchen and be content to wash out the pots and clean the boots. Remember our Lord's rule, whoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Friends, take time this week. Look back at Paul's example in Acts 20, or his bumper sticker verse in verse 24, and ask yourself this question. What relationships has God given me to invest in and be generous towards? What areas of service has God made known to me that I could humbly and happily give myself to? If Christ died for you, if Christ died for me, How are we spending our life for him? Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your word that he who was rich became poor and that by his poverty, he has made us rich. Lord, we thank you that you have taught us humility first by coming to dwell among men and to die in our place. Lord, I pray that we would reflect much on Acts 20 as we look back at what you have done in our life and we look forward to what you still have planned for us to do. Lord, cultivate humility in my life, humility in each member of this church's life. Lord, like Paul, he was there in Ephesus for three years, and that was it. Lord, I pray that you would teach each one of us to number our days. We may be members here for three years or 30 years, or maybe three more months. Lord, I pray that we would number our days and spend ourselves 
in such a way that Christ is exalted and your church is built up. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.